Welcome to the third season of our podcast series, Smarter Apple Spraying. Our three-year research and outreach project is funded by USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Program. The project is a joint effort of Iowa State University, the Ohio State University, and the USDA Spray Laboratory at Worcester, Ohio. I'm your host, Mark Gleason, a plant pathologist at Iowa State University. The project is looking for ways to maximize the efficiency of pesticide sprays in apple orchards in the Midwest. It combines two technologies in field trials in Iowa and Ohio. One of these technologies is called the Intelligent Sprayer. It's a modified air blast sprayer that can apply pesticides much more precisely and reduce spray drift every time a pesticide spray goes on. The other technology is called disease warning systems. These systems track weather conditions so that pesticides can be applied only when there's a real risk of damage from diseases or pests. The goal here is to save sprays when possible. Our project looks at these new ideas separately and together to see how they can make spraying as cost-effective as possible for apples. Pardon me, Jason. Uh, sure. Let me just let me just uh, interject an ignorant question here. Um, you're saying that uh, I believe that uh, that um, you know droplet release and stuff can be adjusted, but but air is more difficult to adjust. It, is it is it not possible engineering wise to adjust um, air output for travel speed, or is that just not something that? Uh, oh no, you can. Uh, there have been some really nifty attempts all out of Europe for some reason. I don't know why depending on which side of the pond you're on, the other side sees more sophisticated and advanced. It's not true, but was, I'm gonna say it anyway. In, in Europe, there were a couple of really neat attempts. One was an annulus. Think of a, a shutter on a camera with all the little blades that close down to change a diameter. They slapped that onto the back of a sprayer on the air intake and could adjust in real time how much uh, draw there was and that kind of suffocated how much air came out. So in real time, this, this thing would open and close at the back of the sprayer to control how much air energy, which is a combination of how fast it's moving and how much volume there is, was released. But it wasn't really tied to anything. It was just a control. Another form of control was a baffle, just a great big flat sheet of metal inside the back of the sprayer. This one did respond in that it had an anemometer on the front. It said, oh, the wind's blowing from the left. Well, that means we're blowing into the wind on the left-hand side of the sprayer. So this little baffle would shift in real time and proportion more air to one side than the other because you need to blow into the wind to overcome it. But if you're blowing with, it adds up. And that's where a lot of downwind drift comes from. That's really sophisticated. I don't know what the heck happened to that either, Mark. I, I personally would have sung that from the rooftops, but... We still actually, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll lift another. The H3O sprayer, which I mentioned earlier, it has a nifty trick. Uh, the header of the sprayer itself gets bigger. It actually opens up the air outlet in response to something. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I think it may also be a manual change, but it could be tied to travel speed. 
the trick here is not that a change in your air or even your liquid flow can respond to something. The trick here is to know how it should respond to that something. Well, so let's say for example, you're in your orchard and uh, you're content that you've got a travel speed that's reasonable. Um, it not only gets the job done, but it seems to give enough time for the air to reach the top of your canopy, one of the trickier bits. Uh, and you're seeing that it's, it's moving the leaves around. And while it is blowing through a bit, it's not so excessive that you're losing a lot of spray. In other words, you have really dialed in your air to your target. Mm -hmm. And then the wind changes. <laughs> and it gets a little drier, you know. Um, little droplets like to evaporate. They, they just start steaming the moment they're released. A volume, a spray volume that I would say is great for Michigan would absolutely be terrible in, um, you know, California because the air is so dry, the relative humidity that smaller droplets simply don't survive before they get to their, their target. So it sounds like a nuance, but it really isn't. All of these factors work together. So how on earth do we model that so that a sprayer can say, oh, wait a minute. Not only did you speed up a bit on this gala, on this spacing at this height, but it's this temperature out with this relative humidity. And I know you're using a nozzle that produces a medium-sized droplet and your sprayer makes kind of a laminar flow more than turbulent. So we need to up our air by 2%. If we ever figure that out, Mark, I'm out of work and uh, I can't wait. I'll be the first guy in the, the unemployment line with a smile on his face. So do you think this is where machine learning is going regarding it has to. performance? It, it has to. Let's take this back around. The limitations of the existing system is that they can see the target and they can see how much target, fabulous, and they can control how much liquid comes out, but they can't account for whether or not you set your air up correctly or the environmental conditions. But here's the big bit. They don't know if you actually accomplished your goal. So where is machine learning going? Maybe, maybe we don't have to take all of these variables, that is weather conditions, droplet size, airspeed and velocity, size and nature of the canopy. Hey, even whether you have floppy leaves or not, the petioles and how leaves move, are you aiming at flowers or are you aiming at blossoms? How about apples? All of those things change how coverage works too. Maybe we can just sort of skip that black hole and look at the cumulative impact on all of it. Now, humbly, here's how I teach it. Go get yourself three 10-inch ribbons or 25-centimeter ribbons, preferably not flagging tape, just some sort of ribbon, and you tie them on the far side of the upwind tree. And you drive by with the air on. And if those ribbons stand straight out, you're blowing too hard or you're going too slow, or that you don't have enough tree, any of those things. Uh, what do I do about it? Well, uh, have you tried driving faster? Uh, if I drive any faster, I'm gonna slam into rows and I'm already so darn uncomfortable. I can't even do a shoulder check without panicking. Okay, don't drive any faster. Can you back your air up? Oh yeah, I can put it into lower gear, good. Can you move your baffles? Wait, what, what can you do? What are you comfortable doing or what uh, makes sense for your operation to get those ribbons to only just waft on the upwind side when you're driving by. Whatever you need to do to accomplish that is great. But what caused the ribbons to stand straight out or, or just barely move? We don't need to know. All we need to know is that the outcome was what we were looking for. You can pick any number of ways 
to change it. And we can argue until we're blue in the face over the relative influence of all these variables. But really, at the end of the day, all we care about is, did we get the right amount of air in there based on the behavior of that ribbon? Maybe we need something in the canopy that can be our ribbon, our uh, canary in the coal mine, to say whether or not we achieved our goal. Should the sprayer spray more liquid or less? Well, uh, did you hit it? I don't know. That's the end of the discussion. If you can't say whether you hit it or not, then this is all just a, an exercise in futility. So what do we have in there to tell the grower whether or not the sprayer made the right decisions or the grower and the sprayer made the right decisions? We use water sensitive paper, something like that. And the ribbons, those collectively are the air and the liquid flow. But we don't have that. We don't have a, a digital system that can quickly communicate to the sprayer and say, hey, pitcher, says the catcher, I got it. It's good. Whatever you just did, keep that going. Or, hey, sprayer, you said you sprayed. I didn't see drop one. Uh-oh, says the sprayer in real time. What do I do about that? Do I slow down? Do I increase my flow? Do I change my air? Sure. Whichever one of those we can control. Um, at the moment, it's just liquid flow. But until you get a green light that says, we got it, whatever you just sent off into the ether, we, we got it, we caught it. The sprayer is spraying blind. Its eyes are blind. So I think what's missing is that feedback loop. And I, I tell growers all the time, you think you made all the right moves, but if you can't show me a piece of water sensitive paper or a, a ribbon that moved the right way, you are guessing. Your sprayer released X amount of volume per acre but you have no way of knowing if you actually achieved your goal. You have just done the equivalent of parking your sprayer in an alley and opening the bottom of the tank. You might as well have done the same thing. That's, <laughs> that's a bit dark, but that is, that's, your, that's your metric. This much liquid released over this much area. Did it actually you're, get where you wanted it to go? You know. You're pitching, to a catcher that's not, you're pitching to a catcher that's not talking to you. There are some really clever ways that today's sprayers are working around it that each – 3.0 sprayer from Europe, the one I mentioned that is able to control its air, its approach to matching the right amount of fluid to the target is yes, it uses eyes, and yes, it uses uh, uh, some form of canopy density-based adjustment. But how much liquid per canopy? It actually uses tree row volume. We all remember tree row volume. You assume 1,000 gallons per acre for this much tree. Well, I've only got this much tree half of that. Well, okay, half the volume. And that's very simplistic and not entirely correct. But tree row volume is a, a way to do a pro rata cut of how much liquid 30 years ago on standard trees versus today's uh, high density, or I suppose even semi-dwarf. It just means if I got half the tree, I only need half the flow. You actually program that in to this very sophisticated sprayer to tell it, this is about how much tree I think I've got, height, width, depth, all that good stuff. I and see. it says, I think you need this much liquid per cubic foot of tree. And you both high five. And that's how that sprayer works. Through all of its detection, you still had but, to use tree row volume. Let, let me ask you a dumb question, though, Jason. If, this, if, this, if machine learning is smart enough, couldn't it derive exactly those inputs? Like you, you said, let's use tree row, row volume to give, give a rough cut of what the, uh, what the magnitude yeah. of, this, of this block is like. But... Um, could it, uh, machine learning in, in optics characterize that? Anybody I would like to think them? so. Yeah. I've, I've looked at how LIDAR works from a, a real 
um, Mr. Science Wikipedia kind of way of looking at it. And I've read how LIDARs need to be positioned to transect the canopy before they really can't see anymore. If you know what I mean, uh, they can see the outside edge of something. And then basically the signal bounces back and we really don't know what happens beyond this point. We really don't know how dense this canopy is because it bounced back. Um, how much more is behind it? Who knows? Then you end up looking at the angle of incidence as the sprayer moves along. It takes different bites on different angles. Oh, I can see around the edge now. I got a better sense. So a very slow, high-resolution system that can take lots and lots of images from different angles above, below, left, and right on both sides can build a three-dimensional tree. Sure it can. And maybe that's an advocate for a drone or something similar to fly ahead of time and take pictures from all different angles and then feed that back to the sprayer, which would be kind of limited on the plane that the sensors can travel on. They can move left or right, but they can't really move up and down. Or maybe I'm talking out of my, you know, I don't know. I do know it's tricky, but until you have a really good sense of how much canopy you truly have, you can't make the call on how much liquid to spray out. You're listening to a podcast series called Smarter Apple Spraying. The series is part of a three-year project in Iowa and Ohio that is funded by USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Program. Now, back to our interview. Eventually, we I'm sure we'll get there, truly, but not quite yet. We're still working with a system that is better then, you know, just not just turning it on and spraying like mad until the sprayer is empty. This thing is making decisions, but I think the warning here for operators is to ensure that it is doing what you think it's doing. It does need the feedback. That's going to come from you. The, uh, the smart apply system, for example, I believe it shows up thinking 1.1 or 1.2 gallons per acre, or sorry, per, uh, 1.1 or 1.2 ounces per cubic foot of canopy is a good starting point. That's their coverage uh, uh, marker, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, from there, it lies with the operator to ensure that they've optimized everything. I'm driving at a decent speed. I've got my nozzles aimed correctly. I don't have any gaps in the coverage. I've got uh, baffles and deflectors set correctly. I'm spraying in an environmental condition that isn't ridiculously doomed to fail like high winds and dry, dry days. It's up to the operator to ensure all that. And then, and only then, pluck a piece of water-sensitive paper or several, depending which system you use, and assess, did I achieve the coverage that I think will give me control? If not, the only option they have, because they've set up all their air and travel speed, is to say more fluid per cubic foot. Or if they're drenching it, less. I see. Um let me ask you one, one, or, one or two questions that are just slightly outside of, of this um, uh, really fascinating, I understand more after talking to you uh, certainly than I did before, but um, let, let's say I'm a, I'm a grower, I've got uh, 50 acres or something and, and uh, I'm wondering whether this technology is something I ought to invest in. Um, is this, is this technology gonna be strictly the province of, of the bigger orchards? Let's just talk apples for a minute. Um, will it ultimately uh, uh, move down to smaller orchards or is this just one more thing that's going to disadvantage the smaller guy? Good question, Mark. I can tell you that in my experience here in Ontario, it is the larger orchards that are 
tickling this technology right now. I think that's because when you amortize the potential savings over larger acreage, the technology pays for itself faster. That's one possibility. Second possibility is that they have more money that they can lend to you know, a, a fledgling technology like this. And the staff required to run it, by the way, this thing doesn't just come out of the box working. There's a lot of learning curve involved here, a lot of orchard and environmental specific stuff that needs to be set up. So I think they simply have more uh, money and flexibility to test these things right now. They'll, they'll be the first to use them. I don't see why it shouldn't trickle down, but each operator has to assess where the value in this technology is and when they start to see some economic or environmental, I suppose, benefit of it. If you are a small acreage grower and your orchards are all the same size on the same spacing of a similar age and prune the same way, you don't have a whole lot of variability from moment mm -hmm. to moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I'm honest, I, I, I've, been, I've gone on record as saying these are glorified rate controllers. If variability doesn't change, and if precision ag is the response to variability, then you don't need it. <laughs> you don't need it. You would be better off being the dumb version of the smart apply sprayer, which is to do as I suggested earlier, set up your ribbons, park your sprayer, make your adjustments, check for your coverage, and kind of keep your head in the game as the season changes and as your target grows and fills, that's variability. You can make um, broad stroke changes to your sprayer to account for that. But if you're in a situation where you have a lot of variability, uh, these are different row spaces, these are different varieties. I just planted these. I've got a lot of guys that work from offshore. Some have experience, some don't. I can't explain to them as readily as I would maybe do myself how to make these adjustments. It makes sense for me to have a sprayer do the thinking for me. Uh, then in that situation, maybe it's a better fit for you. But even in that situation, I think we have to beware the trap of thinking this technology is capable of doing more than it actually is right now. This is interesting perspective, Jason, because I hadn't thought about it this way. I, I think what I heard you say is that you can do a better job or more efficient job of spray delivery by controlling variability. You control variability from, from two sides. You, you can control the sensing or the, the, the uh, um, yeah, the, the sprayer sensing and, and response to variability, or you can control the variability itself, which is the, the tree architecture, the, 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 and, and, and so you, you can, you can uh, approach this problem from either end in a sense. When we were talking earlier, Mark, you said you, you have spent a long time in extension. Uh, I've been in situations as I'll bet you have where I've been to operations and growers have said, I simply can't get control of this pest or I can't seem to get coverage. I'm, what the heck else can I possibly do? I've done everything with this sprayer imaginable. What did you do to your tree? What? And if you could see me, if this wasn't a podcast, you'd see that I have one hand interlaced with the other. Uh, the equation that is good coverage is adjustments to the sprayer and adjustments to the target crop. Prune those suckers. For, for excellent reason, let air get in there, let them dry out better, let spray penetrate. Oh, but I'll lose you know, potential productive parts of the plant that maybe would have caused a lot of alliteration, which may have produced more apples than if I hack out half the tree. Actually, quite often, no. Um, I've seen 
better yields and better quality when you prune your tree and train your tree correctly and uh, give the sprayer an opportunity to spray and light to get in an air more effectively than it would have in a closed canopy. So this does not work in a vacuum. It is a, um, it is a, a whole spectrum of things that work together, uh, a continuum that starts with, and this is IPM, I'm playing into your, into your podcast here. Do I need to spray? What's that based on? Where the pest is, its state, its count, whatever metric you use there. What does the product cost and where do I kind of make my dollars back? When does it make economically a good sense? Uh, um, does it make sense to spray? After that decision, is the sprayer set up correctly for the situation I'm in? If I can't push the sprayer any harder, can I change the situation? Well, I can prune, I can this, I can that, I can train. Oh, sadly, can't change the weather. So either I work with it or I park the sucker or invest in uh, fixed application systems. I'm excited to see maybe that work one day. But it's far yeah. beyond your nozzle choice. You know, it's a whole spectrum of things you need to consider. Well, this has been really eye-opening, Jason. I really appreciate your taking the time. I wish we could do this as a five-hour podcast. <laughs> You know, your knowledge uh, runs uh, deeper than, than what we've been able to just talk about in, in the last 50 minutes or so. But we've been talking to Jason DeVoe, who is uh, also known as the spray guy, and he is an employee of uh, OMAFRA in, uh, in Canada. And um, do you want to uh, let people know what your email is if they were to contact you or um, your, your website? Uh, Absolutely. Many of them already know it. Yeah, what, no, what is uh, that, in, in fact, I'm, I'm going to extract a toll for this talk. I'm going to make a shameless plug, Please if that's okay, Please Mark. do. Please do. Uh, I can be reached at spray underscore guy on Twitter, for those of you who still use that. But a better way to get a hold of me is to go to a website that I run, a nonprofit website with Dr. Tom Wolf called Sprayers, plural, 101, sprayers101.com. You're going to think perhaps maybe it's field sprayer oriented. It isn't. Uh, there's more specialty crop on there that you can shake a stick at. And so many of your questions may be answered if you use it as a resource. But even more specific to this conversation, uh, there's a book called Air Blast 101, which you can access through the site. It's free. And I wrote this with a few colleagues. And it's everything you never wanted to know about Air Blast spraying. We wrote it to be as future-proof as possible, but I'm sure the future will make fools of our, our guesses. But it's a great way for you to learn about the factors that affect the efficiency and the safety of your spraying and gives you options for your specific operation to make changes for the better. So grab the book. It doesn't cost anything. We don't make any money off of it. Uh, we're not sponsored. It's just good extension, I hope. Well, thanks so much, Jason. That's uh, Those plugs are super helpful to growers, I think. And Many are aware, but then uh, there'll be some listeners that aren't. So I really appreciate that and appreciate your taking the time. We've um, been listening to Jason DeVoe, the spray guy uh, in the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. So thanks again, Jason. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. You can find more episodes in this series at the Smarter Apple Spraying website. The link is https colon two front slashes www.smartapplespray.plantpath.iastate.edu. The host for this series is Mark 
Gleason. Jose Gonzalez is the editor. The Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series is funded by a grant from USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Program. For more information about the three-state project, contact Mark Gleason. Email is mgleason, M-G-L-E-A-S-O-N, at iastate.edu in Iowa. Or Melanie Lewis Ivy. Email is ivey.14 at osu.edu at the Ohio State University.